soon as he helps me with my cane. <laughs> Thank you. Good morning. It is a blessing to be with you all and uh, bring you greetings from Grace Bible Presbyterian Church in Sharonville, Ohio. Sometimes we say Cincinnati, Ohio. We're kind of north of Cincinnati, um, but we greet you nonetheless. Our, our congregation is grateful to, to be hosting the offices of PMU now. Uh, it has been a real encouragement to the church, and uh, I get to serve kind of with a a foot on both sides of the fence there, and it's really, really a great blessing to all of us. Um, please return in your scriptures to Psalm 13. Psalm 13. And let us go to the Lord and ask for his blessing on this time in his word. Our Father, we come before you thanking you that you have given us your word that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us. You haven't left us to grope and wander and uh, try to discover or imagine what things might be true, but you have given to us your word. And I pray that we would hear it, Lord, that your people would be strengthened, blessed, and encouraged by your word. And, and those that hear your word and do not know the Lord Jesus Christ and his salvation, I pray, Father, I would be drawn to him by your spirit. In Christ's name, amen. So it's good to be in 2021. Uh, we had a very rough year last year, and it seems to be hanging on a little bit. Um, but uh, without regard to 2020 and pandemics and all these kinds of questions and concerns, um, Psalm 13 is a ministry to God's people. I do think that uh, 2020 and even 2021 will be to our current generation what 1914 to 1918 and 1930s and 40s were to older generations and that it that World War One, World War Two, and other such worldwide concerns uh, tend to shape a generation and to be a touch point in the way we think about things. And I think as we wrestle with all these frustrations and all these discouragements and the many other things related to 2020, and we come to a passage like Psalm 13, which begins with words like, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Let's remember that it's not just the current issues of a virus and questions of a pandemic that, uh, that the Lord ministers to us in and brings us out of, but uh, long before these things, people, even kings like King David, would look to God and ask to be drawn up out of a miry pit. And so you and I wrestle with things. We may like to put our best foot forward. Uh, there's a saying, in, at least in my part of the country, maybe it's out here too, but that you shouldn't hang your uh, air your dirty laundry out in public, right? You just kind of keep those struggles of your family private. And um, quite often that's the way we operate. But in this case, even King David was willing to express the distress of his soul. And I think it's important for us to realize that we are not beyond that. That if King David, a man after God's own heart, can struggle so greatly... Uh, we ought not be surprised if we come to times where we struggle greatly. 
There are trials in our lives, there are tribulations, there are hardships and suffering and betrayals and relationships that are severed, broken, and things that we just don't understand how we'll get through. Even Jesus from the cross referred to Psalm 2022 when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's drawing drawing the, the minds of God's people to these times of trouble, which certainly he experienced on the cross. And so we have this expression in the Psalms. One of those things that I really appreciate the Psalms for is the breadth of expression of all these areas of our lives that we encounter. Uh, there's, there are times of just overwhelming uh, joy and jubilation, and, and those are expressed in the Psalms. And there are times when we're, uh, on the contrary, in the pit, and those times are expressed in the Psalms as well, and draw the heart to praise. And so David begins with a couple of questions. If you look at Psalm 13, verse 1, it says, To the choir master, a Psalm of David, How long, O Lord, will, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? These are questions, these questions of desperation, wondering why this line of questioning questioning is acceptable. Do you remember when, uh, when Job went through his trials, eventually he came to a time when he'd seemed to have crossed a line with the Lord, and he got a rebuke so that he placed his hand over his mouth and he wouldn't say any more. But here David looses his tongue to cry out to the Lord. And I think there's, if I could just briefly give some explanation, I think there's a disposition of the heart that we see in David here that at, for a time perhaps Job had lost, a disposition of humble uh, obedience and a desire to be guided by the Lord out as opposed to call the Lord to give an account of himself. And so there's a questioning here and it's a longing and, and perhaps you have experienced this, these, this time of questioning in your soul. Verse 2, he says, how long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? The, the, have you ever been oppressed by some sorrowful season where Every moment of the day seemed to be taken up with trying to figure out what to do or how is this going to be resolved or what's the next step that I ought to take and what can I do or is there anything for me to do in this? And is, it, is this a season for me to just stop and pray and wait and trust? Or is there some active obedience that I need to, to walk out? And so there are times when life is difficult and trials are in our lives and we're wondering what is it lord that we should do and we take counsel in our souls and perhaps it's one of those things that you find yourself in a situation where to speak of it to other people would seem to be a betrayal of a confidence and so you might might determine that you've got to bear this burden alone i i i I hope and I pray that if you're in a situation like that, that, that you would not bear that burden alone, that you would seek counsel from those that the Lord would give, give you as counselors. And so, but we have David here, who's taking counsel in his soul. And you see the way the questioning goes in the first verse. Will you forget me forever? 
Doesn't it seem like a bold accusation? Would you pray such a thing? God, you've forgotten me. I think that seems to take a certain boldness that I don't know that I would have in prayer to utter, but perhaps in the back of my mind I would think such a thing, or live as though God had just forgotten me. But David goes one further in this, doesn't he? He doesn't just consider that God has passively forgotten him. He says, how long will you hide your face from me? David is in a situation where he's seeking the face of God, and it is as though God does not want to be found. This is the way David sees his situation. Why, God, are you hiding your face from me? I think it's critical for us to understand that there are times in our lives that we have had, or you may have, where you will be in a similar pit, similar time of despair. And so, in verses 3 and 4, he looks around himself. Not only is he in, his, in the quiet place before the Lord, he's unable to get God's attention. He's unable to find the face of God to help him. But he looks around and he says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. He looks around and he sees it's not just that he's going through a hard time. There are people who have it in for him. He sees himself as the victim of attack of those around him. And then in verse 5, we see that wonderful word, three letters in English, but. All of this despair, all of this searching, And then he says in verse 5, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. All that he has said to this point is down. It's dark. It's negative. It's seeking without answers. But in verse 5, his heart pivots. It turns on something. He says, I have trusted in your steadfast love. And he goes on, My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Do you feel the pendulum swing in this psalm? Such darkness, such despair, and in only six verses, four of them give in to the darkness and despair, and then two of them come to a conclusion that God has dealt bountifully with him. And what is it? This is what I, this is what I want to focus on here. What is it that, that David's heart, David's soul pivots on in this psalm that brings him from such despair and such darkness to a place of such hope? He says, My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord. Something happens. If we were to look for the word for steadfast love in verse 5, but I have trusted in your steadfast love, we would find the the Hebrew word chesed. Uh, You can think of it as H-E-S-E-D to spell it in a way that would make sense to an English speaker. But I have trusted in your chesed. It's on this that all of this pivots. 
you know, words, I've heard words described as those things that take ideas from one person's mind and bring them into another person's mind. So sometimes a word is, is just the right word, and it's, it's as though it is just the perfect fit. And I think in, in Hebrew, chesed probably was, but in English, it's as though it takes a train to hold all the cars and all the words to, to bring the thought that is in this Hebrew word. So let me share with you a few things that I learned in, in looking to this word. And I think it's that significant, right? It's a word on which the soul of King David goes from despair to rejoicing. I, I thought as I was studying this, this is something I need to get a hold of. This is something my heart needs to get a hold of. What is going on here that is referred to in English as steadfast love? Well, uh, this word chesed has been called an untranslatable word. It's been it's been uh, it's incorporated many English words to try to translate this one Hebrew word. It's used 248 times in the Old Testament. It's been said that it would, and I haven't been able to to verify this, but so. I'll, with that caveat out here, but it's been translated 169 ways in six English translations. So trying to find a word to just to use one for one for this this Hebrew word has been impossible. Uh, it has the idea of an unexpected or undeserved kindness that one receives. It, it incorporates mercy, the steadfast love, loyal love. In fact, if you're looking for the word in English that's most used, at least in the Old Testament, it would be the word mercy. But in 1535, Miles Coverdale invented the word loving kindness to try to encapsulate the word chesed. Uh, if you want some more, R.C. Sproul does one of the, the Ligonier videos just on this expression of God's loyal love. So if what this word reveals is powerful enough to take David from how long and will you forget me forever to I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me, I would say this word is worth a closer look. And so I'd like to do uh, a, a tour, just a short, brief tour here. A couple weeks ago, my wife and I celebrated our 25th anniversary. Um, I made the the big mistake of... of getting married on a weekend of synod. So some uh, synod attendees from 25 years ago might remember when Grace hosted synod and Pastor Cook, who was our pastor, founding pastor, graciously uh, married this young couple in his church right in the midst of hosting synod. I can tell you, I had no idea what I was asking of Pastor Cook to marry us on the week of synod. And I do now. But this means that, uh, that our anniversary falls on days when I am away quite often. And uh, so this year we got a trip away, and it was special, and uh, we went to Colorado. We're not planning on this, but the aspen leaves were turning. It was beautiful. Uh, on the other side of the Mississippi, where I'm from, uh, we would go to Gatlinburg and that in West Virginia to see the leaves turn. And um, well, we just happened to be in, in outside of Denver near Breckenridge uh, when the leaves were turning, and it was gorgeous. And so we drove around, and um, it was just me and my wife, and we have six children, but none of them were there. This is the first trip like this in quite some time, and we pulled off at 
if not every pull-off, every other pull-off to take pictures of the leaves. And you might say, well, one hillside looks just like the other, but they all looked worthy of a photograph, uh, worthy of being uh, uh, on the cover of a puzzle. It was just that pretty. And so we stopped and we stopped and, and took a look uh, to the point that I started to take, a pictures, take pictures of Kelly taking pictures. Um, so it's just a pull-off, and you don't get to drink it all in, but for just a brief minute, you get to take a look at the grandeur of what's in front of you. And so I want to try to do that briefly um, as we just kind of skate through a few passages in the Old Testament. So if you have your, we used to have sword drills. I don't know if you guys do that at your summer camp, but in the Great Lakes Presbytery we do. So if you've been sharpened up on your sword drills, that may come in handy this morning. But if you would turn with me to Exodus chapter 34, we see a use of the word chesed. I'm trying to pronounce that appropriately and, uh, and be mindful of spreading germs at the same time. But I was told by Phil Resnick that I did okay when I preached on this passage in Cincinnati. But if you look in Exodus chapter 34, we come to a place where... Moses is leading the people of God out of Israel, and God has called Moses up onto the mountain, and he's calling him to lead his people. And Moses boldly asks in, verse, in chapter 33, in verse 18, he says, Please show me your glory. And maybe you remember this request, and that God puts him in the cleft of the rock, and and uh, as, as a mercy to Moses, he doesn't show him all of his glory because he would not survive such an experience. But he passes by before him, and I want you to hear the words the Lord uses in, in declaring his own character to Moses. This is Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6. Well, back up to verse 5. The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of of the Lord. You'll notice that's in capital letters. So it's referring to Yahweh, Jehovah, the covenant name of God. So not, not just Lord in a master uh, or sort of a generic sense that we might often use it, but here a particular use declaring his name. And so in verse 6 he says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. There's our word, chesed. And faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation, and we'll stop there. And so when God is declaring his character to Moses, he declares that his name uh, is, is the Lord God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in chesed. This loving kindness, this loyalty, this mercy, this compassion, it's, it's part of the essence of who God's, or what his character is. It is God's description of himself. It's central to God's glorious character. This is not something that comes and goes with God. He's not a passionate God that, that, that fluctuates. But this is central to his 
holy, and glorious character. And so God chooses to describe himself in this instance with the word chesed, and he is bountiful in it. And so if you'll turn to the next uh, passage, uh, Numbers chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14. We see this again here uh, in chapter 14, verse 11. It says, The Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me, in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. This is that occasion where they've been brought out of Egypt and they're complaining against God and they're saying, wouldn't it have been better if we'd just been in slavery? You know, we got our, we got our, we knew what to count on back then. It was not a life of faith. It was a life of slavery, but there was little faith uh, that was required on where your next uh, meal would come from and so forth. And so as they're wandering in the wilderness and they don't see the end, they don't see what God has in store for them, what's planned for them, they begin to murmur and complain and want to go back. And so God asks Moses this question, how long are they going to despise me and not have faith in me? And God says, I will strike them and I will disinherit them idea that God would take a people that he adopted for himself and say, no longer. You're no longer mine. It's a frightening thought. And it's a thought that I think perhaps David was toying with, that God has hid his face from him. His relationship with God seemed to have changed at its core. And so, but here, how does Moses respond Verse 17, he says, And now, please let the power of the Lord be great, as you have promised, saying, The Lord is slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Does that sound familiar? Here's Moses praying, praying scripture in a sense, praying the revelation of God back to him. He's counting on the character of God. He's counting on the steadfast love of God. And so his request in verse 19, please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your chesed, your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. When you have sinned against God, remember that he is a God whose love is abundant and powerful. The reason, if you're a Christian, the reason you were forgiven throughout your life since the day you were saved is because God is overflowing with chesed, because he's overflowing with steadfast love. It is who he is, and so he's inclined to offer forgiveness to you, even when you have given no reason to receive his love, even when you've given him reason to strike you or to disinherit you. God is still abounding in this steadfast love. It is who he is. We are recipients of the tenderness of God, not because of something in our character, but because 
of something in his character. So next, we've got to hurry back into the car and move on to the next overlook. So please turn to Hosea, the book of Hosea. Central again to the story, the account of Hosea and his ministry is this element of God's character. And so, if you, you recall, Hosea is commanded by God to go and marry an adulterous woman because his life is going to illustrate God's faithful love to his people. And so, so, Hosea marries Gomer, and in chapter 4, verse 1, he, he explains to us why we're seeing this display. He says in chapter 4, verse 1, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. Well, God, the offense that God has with his people is in part that they do not express toward him the same love that he has been expressing toward them. They don't have this chesed this steadfast love, this love for God, this disposition of loyalty and love and kindness toward God as he has showed to them. And so, uh, in chapter 6, we'll get to a verse that's very familiar. In chapter 6, we come to this place where they're asking this question. God says, what shall I, in in verse 4, excuse me, chapter 6, verse 4, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love, and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God, rather, than burnt offerings. The central thing here is not the issue with their burnt offerings. It's not the issue with their sacrifices. Behind that, what would give rise to appropriate sacrifices and appropriate burnt offerings would be the the steadfast love for God. And that's what is missing. The central problem that God chooses to address here is not these other things, but what is behind those, the love that they ought to have toward God. The greatest commandment, do you remember? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And this is the problem that God's addressing, is that love is not there. So let's move on once again. We'll move to Micah chapter 2. Micah is the name of our our sixth child, just by way of introducing this, his name is Micah, because the name Micah means, who is like Yahweh? We had five children that were, uh, when the oldest was six, the youngest was a newborn of those five. And then six years later, we have one more. In the in those interim years, we thought, well, the Lord was done with children for us. And then a, a, 
a difficult season came where we thought we might have a child and the Lord saw fit not to uh, have that child raised in our home and then another and four times we lost babies and we had decided in that time uh, when we were surprised that, uh, that Kelly was pregnant the first time well let's 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 give this a year and let's wait on the Lord and let's see before we make any big decisions here let's just see what the Lord provides in this year and the year did contain quite a bit of heartache but a year to the day from the time that we had decided we will see what the Lord has he gave to us a little guy and his name was Micah and it thought oh what a what an answer to prayers. And who is like the Lord to have answered the prayer in the way that he did? And so uh, we are to be amazed by God as we look at the book of Micah. We say, who is like this God? And so in chapter 2, we see uh, what's being addressed. In verses 1 and 2, um, in, in part, what's being addressed in the book. This is just a sample of what's going on. And he says, a woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in their power, in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. And so there are those powerful people among the people of Israel, people with means who lay in their bed and try to figure out how they can get ahead at the expense of their neighbors. This is not chesed, is it? This is the opposite of that kind of living. These are people, people who are seeking to devour one another. And if you look then at chapter 3, verse 11, we get a realization. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets Practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. So this is not a problem that the people or that the, the, the governing body has with the people of Israel. This is a problem of the leadership of Israel. This is a problem of the heads of the priests, of the prophets. They're the ones who have this power and are bringing this hardship on the people. And so God comes to them and you hear the disposition, well, everything's fine. Nothing, nothing bad is going to happen. The status quo is going to be just fine. And so uh, they go on and we'll, we'll skip ahead here because we're just on the grand tour. And so in chapter 6, it says, Hear what the Lord says, Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. And he goes and he expresses this indictment. And then so the people respond, With what shall I come before the Lord, and bow myself before God on high? Verse 6. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Just tell us, God, what 
did you want? That's all. You know, we, we, we're here just doing our jobs, and, and had you wanted something different, you could have just told us. And God, certainly, we would have been obedient to you. This is, this is the, the response from the mouths of the oppressors here. And then what is God's response? And this is the familiar verse in chapter 6, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. To do justice, and to love chesed. That's that word again there. To love kindness. That God's people, like God, would be a people of compassion, of love, of mercy and tenderness and kindness. And yet the leaders of God's people had been just the opposite. And so now we have God expressing that he desires in his people this chesed. That that we are to be like him in this way. And so we hope in the Lord. Micah directs the hope of the people to the Lord, who promises that out of Bethlehem will come a king who will reign and shepherd them. They will dwell secure, and he will be their peace. They found no peace under the leaders that they had. But God is promising one who will come and will bring peace. And then I'd like you to see just the, the crescendo of this idea in, in the book of Micah. In chapter 7, verse 18, the last three verses of the book. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, and passing over transgression and for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in, there it is again, steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love, again, to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Why? Because this is, a, this is what God is like. Who is like this God? And this is his character. He doesn't re- hold on to anger with his people. He delights to show them steadfast love. Have you, have you found yourself too ashamed or embarrassed at times to come before the Lord with your repentance? Have you avoided prayer? Have you avoided attendance at church or being around God's people because you're ashamed of something in your life that, that needs to be dealt with before the Lord, that needs to be repented of, and, and yet maybe you've hesitated? God is reassuring us here that he delights in showing this steadfast love. When he forgives the sinner, he's expressing a glorious part of his character. It's an opportunity for him to be glorified when we come and he shows his grace. So do not hesitate, child of God, and do not hesitate, sinner, to come before the Lord. And so... This is where the Torah ends in the Old Testament. But you might be thinking, well, what about the New Testament? Well, chesed is a Hebrew word. So we're not likely to find it in the New Testament, but there is an occasion. So I'd like you to turn to Matthew. It was the Torah of the Old Testament, but like our vacation, and we wished it could have gone on and on. It could not, but maybe the sermon can. Some of you are worried. 
I've not heard him preach before. How long does he preach? So in, in Matthew chapter 9, this is that occasion, you might recall, uh, Jesus with sinners, tax collectors. And so in verse 10, Matthew chapter 9, verse 10, and as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reading or reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. This is Jesus quoting from Hosea chapter 6. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. God is saying, Jesus is saying of himself, that his desire is for his people to be expressing hesed. And so Jesus himself is the epitome of God's loving kindness, of his steadfast love. And everywhere he went, he represented God's steadfast love. And so we ask ourselves, does this, do we see this in the New Testament like we see in the Old Testament? We can look at these key moments in the, uh, in the history of the Old Testament and the life of, of Israel through history, and we see God operating and ministering to them out of his hesed, out of this loving kindness that he has as a part of their character. And yes, we do see it in the New Testament. We can't point to the words like we could all through the Old Testament, but we see it in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see the Lord Jesus explaining that he is living this way among them with tax collectors and sinners. And so, if you'll turn to Romans chapter 8, I would like to remind us of this great passage that expresses, not by word, but by sentiment, this chesed. Romans chapter 8, I'll start in verse 37. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Why is Paul so certain of that? Because it's the character of God. This does not depend on whether Paul would be faithful throughout all of his life, whether he would come to live without disobedience. God is bountiful in his mercy. And if you'll return then to our, our psalm, Psalm 13. And we see when David is asking these questions, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? And how long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my own soul and have sorrow in my heart? What is it that brings hope to his heart? Verse 5, remember? But I have trusted in your steadfast love. And because he has trusted in his steadfast love, what flows from that? He says, My heart 
shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. You know, this is six verses long. And you know what has not changed? Are the circumstances that David finds himself in. In the time it takes to read a six-verse psalm, his heart has grabbed a hold of something that has changed everything. Things haven't changed around him. Those enemies are still out there. But he no longer has to take counsel in his own soul and feel as though he's going to sleep the sleep of death because his eyes have been fixed on God's steadfast love. It's no surprise then that we're called, isn't it, in the New Testament, to fix our eyes on Jesus, to fix them there, the author and finisher of our faith. That's where our hearts need to reside, brothers and sisters. That's where our minds need to reside. And if you find yourself in a time now or sometime in the future where you just don't see the light at the end of that tunnel, remember this. Remember the steadfast love of God, that it doesn't depend on you and your current situation, but because it is part of his character, it is who he is to love you, his child. He knows how to give good gifts, and every good gift comes down from him, and there is no shadow of turning in his character. This is who God is for those he loves, and he invites us, all who would come, All who would call upon him, he would not cast out. So I've not really come and preached to you a PMU sermon. (laughs) I've come to preach to you the word of the Lord. Understand this, this is what our our hearts and our souls need to experience the, the relief, the rescue, the salvation of the Lord. And this glorious aspect of his character is something that you and I have to go and to to proclaim it to the world, a world that does not deserve God's God's grace and his forgiveness, does deserve to be smitten and rejected by God, and yet he delights to show this loving kindness. Praise be to God. Let's bow our heads. Our Lord God, I thank you. Thank you that you are God as you are, that toward us you delight to show mercy, you abound in steadfast love, and your love toward us is loyal, you are faithful in it. And Father, I thank you that it is part of who you are and and not something that we must earn because we cannot. Thank you for the hope that we have in the darkest of times through the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.